important time if you don't have them out already. And to turn with me to the scripture that Jay just read. That is the book of Colossians, so you'll find it in your New Testament. And if you're using uh, the Pew Bible uh, that's there in front of you, uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3. That falls on page 955 in this Pew Bible. Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we will be narrowing our focus shortly on verse 16. Colossians chapter 3, where we find ourselves in part 3 of our summer sermon series entitled, The Power of Praise, taking a look at what the Bible has to say about God's people singing. And uh, believe it or not, there is quite a bit there. In sermon 1, we saw that God's people are a singing people. That is, God's people always have been, always are, and always will be a people of praise. God's people sing. Last week, we saw the first of three purposes of singing in the church. So we asked the question, why is it that we sing together as a church? Why is it that we come together every week and we sing? Why do we do that? What are, what are God's purposes? We saw the first purpose behind that last Sunday, and that is simply to give praise to our great God, to ad- recognize his value and to acknowledge that through song. So we praise God. That's one reason why we sing. This morning, we will see a second reason, second purpose of praise, and that is simply to proclaim God's truth. So we sing to praise him, and we sing to proclaim his truth to one another. Colossians chapter 3. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, be well pleased by our singing this morning, by the songs that have come from our lips. May they overflow from a life that is honoring to you. May uh, the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be well-pleasing to you, our God. Father, we pray now as we open your most holy and inspired, altogether trustworthy word, we pray that you would teach us this second great purpose for why we sing together, so that as we sing, we proclaim your word, your truth, both to you, but also to one another, so that we might be reminded of who you are and what you have done. And so help us through your spirit, we pray today, all for the glory of Christ. And God's people said together, amen. Well, I want to begin today uh, by a little audience participation, okay? So just giving you a little warning, a little audience participation, a little game. It should be very easy, don't worry. You won't be embarrassed. So here's what I'd like to do. I have chosen about four uh, commercial, TV commercial jingles, right? So four songs that are associated with commercials. I will start the jingle, and then we'll see if you can finish it. You can sing it, or you can just say the words. I don't particularly care. Should be easy. Ready? You ready? Okay, here we go. Number one, how about this one? See, get my singing voice on. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. Okay, very good. You like chocolate. Uh, how about this one? Rice-a-roni, the San Francisco treat. Very good. Yeah, it's really not a San Francisco treat. I've been to San Francisco, and you don't see rice-a-roni on the menu there, but whatever. Okay, how about this one? Uh, Justin, you better know this one, or you will be fired. Ready? Here we go. Like a good neighbor. Okay, very good. Yeah, very good. Number four, uh, this one may be a little older, but if you like coffee, you'll get it. 
the best part of waking up is very good. Yeah, excellent. You guys, excellent. Okay, so why did we do this, right? Yes, it's fun. Why did we do this little exercise um, to show that you guys watch too much TV? No, that's, that's, not, that's not why. Uh, here's why we did this little exercise. What we learn is that music is an excellent teaching tool, is it not? Music is an excellent teaching tool, right? Um, it helps communicate truth, right? It communicates propositional words. Simply put, we learn through singing. See, it's no wonder then that one of the purposes that God has revealed to us in scriptures as to why we sing congregationally is that it is supposed to be a teaching tool. It is meant to be didactic. It is a secondary yet vital way of proclaiming and learning God's word together. So today we're going to begin by focusing on Colossians chapter 3, and we will narrow down our focus rather quickly on verse 16. So first of all, I want us to see from Colossians 3.16 the proclamation of praise, proclamation through praise. And then we'll end our sermon by looking at the practice of proclamation through praise, looking at some applications from this point. So let's begin in Colossians chapter 3. I hope you're there in the Bible. If not, you can look on the screen behind me. We will focus our attention rather moment, uh, rather shortly here on verse 16. But before we do that, as we always should do, I want to take a look at its verse in context. So if you're looking at your Bible, look there now. Look at your scripture at Colossians chapter 3. Uh, as we see oftentimes with Paul, he begins the first half of a book or a letter uh, focusing mainly on doctrinal truth. He's, he's revealing who God is, what God has done, uh, who the person of Christ is. Uh, so we see doctrine, heavy emphasis, Uh, mostly at the beginning of of most of his epistles. And it's true uh, for the book of Colossians. So in Colossians chapters 1 and 2, Paul begins with doctrine. And then we see a major shift in chapter 3, which is where we're going to be. Paul uh, transitions from doctrine to application. He has laid a, a solid theological foundation, so to speak, and then he builds upon that foundation with, with strong applicational bricks, if you will, beginning in chapter Three, But before he gets into the nitty-gritty of church living and Christian activity, he reminds us once again in verses 1 through 4 of a foundational doctrinal truth and reality if you are a Christian. In verses 1 and 4, you can look at it in your Bible there, he reminds us that if we are believers, we have died with Christ and we have been raised to new life with Christ. That is Our old self is gone, our new self, the new man has been raised to life. We are new people, Paul says. He reminds us of this theological and practical truth because he's going to build upon it starting in verse 5. In verses 5 through 7, Paul begins his applicational section, so to speak. He tells us that we should, because we have died with Christ and then been raised with him, that we should consider the members of our bodies as Christians Uh, dead to internal temptations. Notice, he says, consider your bodies dead to things like immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed. So he says, you died to these things, right? Consider yourself dead to them. And then starting in verse 8 and running through verse 11, Paul begins to emphasize communal living. 
and we're getting to our point here, right? Starting in verse 8, Paul says, I'm going to talk about how the local church should get along, right? How is the local church to get along? And he begins in verse 8 by using the image of clothing. And he says there are certain pieces of clothing, so to speak, that we as Christians, as we relate to one another, we should take off, to use his, his language. He says, take off the sins of anger with one another, malice towards one another, slander against one another, harsh speaking to one another, be gentle Uh, he's going to say shortly. He says, don't lie to one another, right? So he says, here are the things in the life of the church that we should take off, right? Don't, Don't participate in these things. Well, he says, take off some vices, but also put on some virtues, right? Notice in verse 12, running through verse 14, there are spirit-enabled virtues that we in the, in, a, in the Christian community are to put on. We are to be compassionate towards one another. He says, be kind to one another. Put on humility with one another. Be gentle with one another. Live in peace with one another. So we've begun to think about how we are to relate to one another. Starting in verse 15, Paul says, live at peace with one another. We just read that verse read, right? We are to be at peace with one another in verse 15. And then jumping to verse 17, Paul says, it's kind of a summary statement. He says, in whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. So sandwiched between verse 15, live at peace with one another, and verse 17, do everything to the glory of Christ is our verse. We find verse 16. And let's focus there just for a moment. Sandwiched in between his call for us to be peaceful in the church and to honor Jesus in the church is a call in verse 16 for us as a body to let the word of Christ to permeate us. That the word of Christ is to be at home with us as a church. Let's begin by looking at verse 16, and we'll take it in thirds, if you will. Let's take a look at the first third of verse 16. I'm using the New American Standard today. It's a little more precise here, so I like its translation. Verse 16, Paul says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Here, obviously, the subject is the word of Christ. It literally could mean the words that Christ spoke when he was here on earth as recorded in the Gospels. I think it includes that. But most likely, the word of Christ refers to the word of Christ that he spoke to his apostles that was inspired by the the Holy Spirit that we then get in the rest of our New Testament. So, at the very beginning of verse 16, The word of God is central, right? The word of Christ, the word that is from Christ, the word that is about Christ. Well, what about that word? Notice what he says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ do what? Richly dwell within you as a church. I love the language here. Paul is using the language of home. Notice, he says, let it dwell within you. 
this doesn't speak to temporary residence, as if you are living at an apartment and you only intend to be there a year or so, right? Maybe like you're doing in college or, you know, you're transitioning. That's not the, the, the language here. Paul says literally, let the word of Christ make its home among you. He t- he's talking about permanent residence. In fact, one, one translation even says it this way. Let the word of Christ find a home with you right? So Paul is saying this, the word of Christ is to have a permanent street address in each local church so that if somebody comes into that local church, they come to grace and they experience what they do, they would say something like this, the word of God lives here. The word of God is present here and its address is 201 Keller Halls Drive, right? The word of Christ is to make its home with us. I like what one commentator says, He says, Paul is urging the community as a whole to put the message about Christ at the center of its corporate experience. It should be constantly at the center of the community's activities and worship. But notice, how is it supposed to dwell here? The word of Christ is not just to make its home here, but notice the adjective, right? Let it dwell how? Richly, right? Let the word of Christ dwell richly. Literally, the idea is let it dwell here in abundance. We use the term rich or richly in this way in our culture, do we not? So if you're at a restaurant and you're asking the, the waiter um, or waitress, hey, what's, what kind of dessert do you like? And they say, well, there's a chocolate mousse that's wonderful. And he says it's rich. What does he mean? He means that it's has lots of sugar, right? That you put it in your palate and you're like, wow, that's overwhelming with taste, right? It's, it has a ton of sugar, not just a pinch or a dash. It's strong. It's unmistakably present, right? That's the idea. The word is to be in the local church with unquestionable presence. It's supposed to be here in abundance so that when we come and participate in the life of the church, we're to say, boy, the word of Christ, it's rich, right? It's It's rich to our tastes. So, the next logical question then is, how is that supposed to work, right? Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell, make its home with you as a church in abundance. Well, how? Well, let's take a look at the last, the the second third of verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. So notice the connection. The word is to make its home in the local church through through the means of two things. Teaching and admonishing. To teach is kind of the positive side of the coin. It means instruction or impartation of biblical truth. So positively we teach. Negatively we admonish. It's the negative side of the coin. It simply means to warn against error or sin. So, how is the word to dwell among us? Well, through teaching and through admonishing with all, what? Wisdom. That is, it's supposed to be done in appropriate ways, with insight into the individuals and the situation. But notice, let's not miss this important point. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing, what are those next two words? One another, right? Teaching and admonishing one another another. This highlights that this responsibility in the local church to teach and to admonish with the word of God, 
it's not just my job, right? And it's not just Jay's job or Dan's job or your Sunday school teacher's job. Whose job is it? Your job. Everyone's job, right? This is a corporate responsibility that we have to one another. So we've looked at two-thirds of this verse, and I want to pause, just push pause on the sermon. So we've paused. And I want us to, to think just a second. Don't look ahead at the verse, even though you might know what's coming. Let me ask a question. What would you expect Paul to say next? Right? He said, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And the way that that happens is through teaching positively and admonishing negatively. Okay? So how are we supposed to do that, Paul? What does that look like? So if I were writing, I would probably go to what I call in the church uh, as it relates to teaching and instruction, the big three. The big three S's, if you will, that I often associate with teaching biblical truth. I would say, um, let the word of Christ dwell richly with you, uh, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through sermons and Sunday school and small group. If I were writing, that's probably what I would say. And, and that's good. Those are teaching avenues, significant teaching avenues. That's not what Paul says. Where is Paul going to go with this? He introduces us to a fourth S, if you will, that's supposed to be instructive to the local church. Yes, sermons are good, and Sunday school is good, and small groups are good, but how else are we supposed to teach and admonish one another? What's the fourth S? You got it in your mind? Singing. You're very good. Singing through song. So let's finish the verse. Let the word of Christ dwell richly, uh, richly, not richly, richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with, and here we go, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Did you get the connection? Right? Praise is a way to proclaim God's truth, is it not? Here Paul talks about three types or categories, if you will, of singing that should be done in the local church. Um, Though they can be often tricky to define and with precision and also to distinguish, right? But here's my best shot. First of all, he says that we are to teach and admonish with psalms, which, as you most likely have in your head, these refer, I think, to literally the psalms, right? You have 150 of them in your Bible, right? And they are in part, songs. The early church sung them, right? And so Paul says, listen, it's very natural for us when we sing as a church to sing literally the Psalms, but I think even categorically speaking, he's, he's saying we should, we should sing Scripture, right? That Scripture should be sung. So we sing Psalms, but not only that, we sing, what's the second one, right? Teaching and admonishing one another with Psalms and hymns with psalms and hymns when you do your research this is by the way the only time i think this shows up uh this word it shows up in the new testament other than ephesians uh, chapter 5 so it's kind of hard to pin down but if you look at the old testament this word that is translated hymn in the old testament shows up quite a bit and it refers in the old testament uh, most often to songs that are sung by the people of god in praise to god That is, they are songs that we talked about last Sunday. Songs that say, God, you're great. They make much of God. They speak of his character, right? And so when we think of hymns, biblically speaking, we 
mean, Paul means, these are songs that are sung in praise to God. They're not necessarily the kind of hymn that we think of that are in our hymnals, although many of those are hymns. They sing praise to the Lord, right? So we sing psalms, we sing hymns. And what's the third category there? Do you notice it? It's, a, it's kind of a general category, spiritual songs. I think what Paul is doing is he's just kind of putting the umbrella over this, and he's saying any song that is spirit-inspired, that is Christian in nature, is acceptable. Spiritual songs as opposed to secular songs, right? And so we don't get up here on a Sunday morning and seeing Justin Bieber, for instance. I don't know why he came to mind, uh, but let's just, you know, we don't sing secular songs, right? That's not what we do as Christians. We sing spiritual songs, right? Spirit-inspired songs. So, we've taken a look at Colossians 3.16. And I, I hope you can see the overarching point here, right? One avenue for God's word dwelling richly among us as a church is through the avenue of singing. Praise is a pathway of proclamation. It is an instrument of of instruction, right? I love what Martin Luther said on this point. You can see it behind me. Music, he says, is a vehicle for for proclaiming the word of God. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was only given to man to let him know that he should praise God both with his words and music, namely by proclaiming God's word through music and by providing sweet melodies with words. Now, while singing, the instruction that we do while we sing doesn't eclipse the clear teaching and preaching of the Word of God. It is meant to be its trusty sidekick. It's supposed to be its handmaid. It's supposed to be its complement, right? So you could say, you could say it this way. You could say that singing the Word is to preaching the Word as Robin is to Batman, right? As Robin is to Batman. Robin ain't Batman, right? But he aids Batman, and he's an important part in what Batman does. So is our singing in proclaiming the word of God. So, we have seen clearly, I think, that singing is a way of proclamation. So what? What does that mean for us? Let's begin to look at, then, the practice of proclamation through praise. What I have is two overarching implications, right? So two main implications, and underneath each of those implications, I have several applications. Does that make sense? So here's the first kind of main implication from what we've seen. Number one, we are to learn God's truth through singing. That should be obvious from the text, right? We are to learn God's truth through singing. So the question then becomes, how does music help us do that? How does music and singing help us learn truth? Well, I think there are at least four kind of subpoints. Number one, first, singing helps us remember God's word. See, scientists now are on the verge of, of, of affirming this. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You, you do a little research and you find out what we've known all along intuitively, intuitively is that our brains are kind of hardwired to remember tunes and, and lyrics and songs easier and better more than words alone. So that when you teach your pre-K uh, student the ABCs, how do you do it? Okay, here we go. Ready? Sit down. A, B, C, F. No, no, no. A, B. How do we do it? You know. A, B, C, D. Right. We teach it 
in song because our brains are hardwired to think and remember things in song, right? So you, you probably will never, ever, ever remember a line from John Wesley's sermon, sermons, even though they're actually very good. But his brother, Charles Wesley, wrote hymns. And we know a ton of his hymns. Hark the herald angels sing. You can sing it right now if I asked you to because it's implanted in your mind, God's truth, because it's in song. So you may not be able to define, if I asked you right now and put you on the spot like I did Justin this morning, I said, no, I didn't actually, but I thought about it. Define the Trinity for me. Are you ready? Go. Could you do it? I hope you could at least some, give it a stab. But if I compared your definition to the evangelical dictionary's definition, it might be a little bit different. But if I, if I asked you to, to sing a song and, and you sang God in three persons, blessed Trinity, you know the Trinity through song, right? Because singing helps us remember God's word. Second, it's an implication. Because singing helps us remember God's word, then we should use melodies, that is the song part of the singing of the song. We should use melodies that, that we are, number one, we are able to remember, and then number two, that we actually want to remember. Let me get that again. We should choose songs that we are able to remember and that we actually want to remember. See, good melodies are both We are both able to remember them, and we want to remember them. And bad ones, we are both unable to remember, and quite frankly, we don't want to remember. You ever, uh, here I got, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but here we go. Uh, As a kid, you ever sing the song, this is the song that never ends. Okay, now don't, don't think of it for the rest of the sermon. I want you to focus. But that's a song that should be banned forever and ever, right? It's a bad song. We don't want to remember it. Bob Coughlin from Sovereign Grace Ministries, he says this, When great lyrics are set to bland music, we may not want to remember them. In contrast, when great lyrics are set to cutting-edge creative music, he says we may not be able to remember them. Here's a, a short illustration of about three minutes of what I mean on this point about being able to remember and wanting to remember the, the songs that we sing. Singing can help us remember words. Now that has a number of implications for us as followers of Christ. First, in the church, we should use melodies that are effective. And by effective, I mean melodies that people are able to remember and melodies that people want to remember. Let me give you an example. We sang this morning... Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. One of my favorite hymns, that is a great melody. Now what if that, those words were put to this melody? Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. It just, it's not quite as gripping. (laughs) Nobody wants to remember that melody. Now, on the other hand, suppose it went something like this. 
Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing all for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming thumbs above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Now of thy redeeming love. Nobody would be able to remember that melody. So those are two examples of ineffective melodies. Now, some of us think the only effective melodies were written 300 years ago. <laughs> this is the part where the message gets exciting. See, it's a little intimidating being put on a roster with guys like Sinclair Ferguson and John Piper. So I just thought, well, I'll just bring my piano up here to make it a little easier. Because I'll challenge you to a piano playing contest anytime. Others of us think that the best melodies have been written in the last 10 years. Both groups are right. Both groups are wrong. Both familiar and new melodies have their place in the singing of the people of God. When so that helps us understand the point. So we should pursue songs that are um, good to the ear. We enjoy listening and singing, but not ones that are overly complicated so that we can't remember them. So, implication number three. We sing and it helps us remember God's word, right? We should choose melodies that go towards that end. Third, we should seek to memorize songs. We should seek to memorize the songs that we sing, right? Because when we remember songs in our head, we remember the biblical truth that are contained in those songs. Coughlin, a little bit later, says that some churches suffer from SDD, not HDD, or ADD, excuse me, but, but, but SDD, which he says is screen dependency disorder. Screen dependency disorder. Maybe we have that a little bit. We're too reliant upon the words on the screen, and so we, we fail to internalize and to memorize God's truth through song. He says other churches suffer from HDD. Probably know where that's going. Hymnal dependency disorder, right? And the point is the same. Memorizing God's songs are a way of memorizing God's truth. Number four, there is a place for performance. There's a place for performance. What I mean by that is that if singing in the church is to be a tool for training us in God's word, and if there is a corporate responsibility for us to teach and admonish one another, which there is, then I can see no reason why teaching through song, special performance, uh, is, is somehow unacceptable, right? That teaching through corporate singing is not the only way that we can learn through singing, right? And so we do performances. So, overarching point number one. We are to learn God's truth through singing. But there's a second one, and it is a very valuable one. Implication number two. We are to then sing scriptural truths. Not only do we learn truth through singing, but we are to sing that which is biblical. You could say it this way. It not only matters that we sing, it matters what we sing, right? Gordon Fee says it this way. I love this. Show me a church's songs, 
and I will show you their theology. Think about that just for a minute. He says, you can, you can take a look at their formal theology, but he says, if you take a look at what they're singing, that, that will tell you what they are believing, right? I, uh, I had one wise pastor kind of ask, it, ask a question, and it's a great question. He said this, if the teaching in our churches were limited, limited to what we sing, how well taught would your people be? Isn't that a good question? If we learned only through what we sang, would we still have good doctrine, right? Good question for us. You know, there's been a movement lately of songwriters that produce old and new hymns that take this seriously. I think about Keith and Kristen Getty. We sing several of their songs here, right? Like, In Christ Alone, Speak, O Lord, Resurrection Hymn. These songs that are pleasing to the ear and are doctrinally rich. These are songs that we should cling to and and sing, as well as many ancient hymns from our faith that are so doctrinally rich. You you open up a hymnal and you read the, the lyrics in many of our hymns, and you know what you see? Scripture. You see Scripture and references all throughout. And those are the songs that we should sing, because number one, theology is expressed in song, right? What we sing, we are expressing what we believe. But number two, theology is not only expressed in what we sing, but theology is actually formed by what we sing. See what I mean? Because when we're singing, we are allowing our theology to be formed. I like what the Commission on Worship from the Reformed Church in America says about this. They say, through congregational singing, Christian faith is not only expressed, it is to a very real degree formed. Since people tend to remember the theology they sing more than the theology that is preached, a congregation's repertoire of hymnody is often a critical, of critical importance in shaping the faith of its people. And notice what, notice what he says. Through congregational song, God's people, I love this, learn their language about God. God's people learn how to speak with God. See, we learn our language about God so often by what we sing. So friends, in closing, in closing, I really don't care if you can remember the rice song. I really don't care if you remember State Farm or the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. I don't care if you remember any of that. But I do care quite a bit about what you remember from the songs that we sing week to week and year after year. They are an avenue of proclaiming and teaching God's truth to one another. So we'll close with this last quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, there is an elevating, stirring, soothing, spiritualizing effect about a thoroughly good hymn which nothing else can produce. It's, it sticks in men's memories when texts are forgotten. It trains men for heaven, where praise is one of the principal occupations. Preaching and praying shall one day cease forever. I guess I'll have to have a new job in heaven. But praise shall never die. The makers of good ballads are said to sway national opinion. The writers of good hymns, in like manner, are those who leave the deepest marks on the face of the church. 
May God leave his deep marks on our face through the singing of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for your word and that it reveals that when we sing together, we are not only praising you for your infinitely worthy of it, but we are also proclaiming your truth that is found in the words that we sing. And so, Father, we pray that the things that we sing, the theology that we express in our songs would be well-pleasing to you, and also that you would use those truths found in the songs that we sing to shape our thoughts and our beliefs and our affections for you so that we might be in obedience to you all the days of our life. We're grateful for it and for the day that you've given. And we ask it in the name of Christ. And together, God's people said, amen. Guys, thanks a lot. See you next Sunday.